Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to note that on an earlier released version of this podcast, I listed 10 companies that were associated with nuclear energy, but I incorrectly attributed numbers as being revenue-based when they were actually percentage of power generation by fuel type. Extremely sorry for the mix-up. I definitely will do better next time. Okay, here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Umar Ashfaq, our energy sector analyst, joins Megan Eastman and me to discuss how nuclear energy fits into the ESG world. And then I have a one-on-one discussion with Megan about California's new labor law. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and stay tuned. For our first story, we decided to wade into the hotly debated waters of nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is called renewable energy by some and a wasteful fuel source by others. At the moment, it is an extremely important carbon neutral bridge between renewable energy and fossil fuels. And in the U.S., it accounts for 35% of our carbon neutral energy. But as we are well aware, if something goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And on Wednesday, French energy giant EDF's nuclear program announced some of its reactors contained substandard parts, making everyone fear for the long-term viability of France's massive nuclear program. Okay, so before we get into it, I just want to give the stat card we have for EDF. Remember, at MSCI ESG Research, we rank companies based on their exposure to ESG risks on a triple C to triple A scale, and EDF is rated at an A. Nuclear energy makes up nearly 80% of its energy portfolio, and since it's a carbon-free source of fuel, our ranking reflects those benefits. And there are actually 10 companies in our coverage set that had more than 50% of their 2018 power generation attributable to nuclear energy. EDF, of course, CGM Power, China National Nuclear Power, Exxon Corp, Centrica, E.ON, and Public Service Enterprise Group Incorporated. But as I noted, investors and the public are split on nuclear's benefits. So to help Megan and I sort out these problems, we brought on Umar Ashfaq, who helps cover the energy sector for us and has written on the transition to a low-carbon economy. So thanks for joining us, Umar. Could you discuss how nuclear fits into the low-carbon conversation? Is it a solution for the carbon-neutral future, or is it a false god? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mike. So... Uh, Taking a look at the regulatory landscape, so there are a lot of benefits that nuclear does provide to society. If we are to reach um, any sort of carbon reduction targets, nuclear is going to be an integral part of the solution. And in light of this and in light of particularly in the U.S., in light of the um, carbon reduction goals that different states have, um, several states have also here in the U.S. decided to provide subsidies or uh, clean energy credits or some call call them uh, zero carbon emission credits to uh, nuclear providers in order to help them um, continue production of energy through nuclear uh, through nuclear power um, through nuclear power. So part of what we look at when we assess companies' carbon emissions is the fuel source they use in the production. Cement, for example, is a molecularly dirty material, but 
we nod in approval if a cement company at least sources its fuel from clean sources. And companies understand from shareholder engagement that one of the easiest and quickest changes they can make is sourcing their fuel from a clean source. So by that logic, wouldn't it make sense for investors to pressure companies to build more nuclear reactors or source as much nuclear fuel as possible? So I don't think any company wants to or or should um, want to reduce its carbon footprint and um, be a zero carbon company at the expense of going bankrupt. So economics, uh, energy economics play a, a huge role in whether a company wants to invest in solar, renewable or, or any other sorts of renewable or, or nuclear. Right. If you look at the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the EIA, you see nuclear has the highest operating and maintenance cost per per kilowatt hour, which is actually, they're more than fossil fuels at the moment. But according to this MIT report about the future of nuclear energy, if you also incorporate the social cost of carbon into the question with, say, a carbon tax, the reactors are actually more profitable than fossil fuel-powered utilities. And it would be great if we could use 100% renewable energy right now. But like I said at the beginning, there's this problem with renewables at the moment, and that is demand shift and storage. We do not have the technology available at the to store enough energy to account for electricity use when it's dark outside or the wind stops blowing uh, or the wind stops blowing or what have you. So until we account for that gap, we need to use bridge fuels like unfortunately fossil fuels or natural gas or nuclear. So Umar, lay off for me what would need to happen if we decided to bring a lot of new nuclear plants online to be that bridge fuel. So the key thing to understand here is that traditional nuclear plants have a long lead time uh, before they can start producing energy. And if you look at the U.S. by itself, um, or the last time a nuclear plant uh, started operation, nuclear plant for energy started operations here in the U.S., was around about 30 years ago. So there are a number of factors which inhibit uh, new power plants from new nuclear power plants from coming online and and contributing to the grid. The biggest one being they're just not as cost effective as they used to be. They may be a dependable carbon free source of power, but at the same time, they do require a significant amount of capital in terms of building and development. There's a long lead time and then there are sensitivities around sourcing fuel and at the end of the day, if you're not getting power, which is competitive uh, in, on the grid, that may not be the best way to do it. That said, you, know, you also have one nuclear power, the Lone Star Standing is Southern Company. Southern, Southern Company is planning to build a, another nuclear plant. But that project itself has been racked by delays. There have been several cost overruns as well. So all of that is symptomatic of the problems that traditional nuclear power plants face. That said, uh, we do have uh, the next generation of nuclear power that is still not fully commercially viable, but at the same time, the uh, proof of concept is there. These are smaller modular nuclear reactors, which would not require the amount of area or the amount of uh, personnel that traditional nuclear power plants require. And at the same time, these the added benefit of these smaller nuclear power plants is the fact that they can use depleted uranium, which is essentially the waste uh, uranium or the waste radioactive material of traditional nuclear plants as fuel to uh, generate power. 
this would uh, have twofold benefits one you have a direct um dependable source of energy and on the other hand you are also to an extent solving for the um nuclear waste that continues to be a problem in terms of the radioactive waste that the companies generate yeah that's kind of sweet i've read about thorium reactors and molten salt reactors and fast reactors and micro reactors and way out on the edge of science there's there's this fusion reactors and do but do you have any sense about when these will actually be commercially viable and not just stuff of sci-fi so that again like most technologies uh, it, it it would be hard to say look look ahead in the future and say that in in 10 years time or 20 years time this this would be commercially viable at the same time nobody really knew solar uh, photovoltaic solar commercial solar would be um commercially viable the way it has there has been nobody really anticipated that uh, ramp up that has happened already in terms of costs in terms of levelized cost of energy for solar as well as wind so we hope that um, a, a ramp up in investment in nuclear but at the same time there there are um risks related to the supply chain for um depleted uranium the and there are also national security risks related to it so it would be there are a lot of variables which which would need to be hashed out before we can safely say that this is going to be the new way forward for nuclear so megan th- those are all kind of the future aspects of renew uh for nuclear energy that umar just went through and i want i want to read a couple things to you before i ask you my next question so if we assume according to the climate scientists at ipcc the world needs to transition entirely to clean energy by mid century let let's take that as a given on this podcast. So, according to the International Energy Agency, 35% of the world's carbon-free electricity comes from nuclear. In the United States, for example, in Arizona, where the largest nuclear facility is domiciled, it provides 25% of the state's electricity, and Arizona wants to have this 80% clean resource energy standard in the state. So, that would have to include nuclear. There are extensive carbon neutral policies in the EU and Asia, And now here's where I want to get to my question about investors. If we base our judgment on the speed with which we must become carbon neutral, the regulatory pressure behind this need, and then we assume the biggest problem with renewable energy is the inability for it to power anything when it's not sunny or windy, and we assume that's not going to be solved as quickly as it needs to get solved. That's a lot of assumptions, but still. Shouldn't investors who are engaging with companies to cut their carbon push for more nuclear energy or is that simplifying the problem a little bit? I think it's simplifying the problem a little bit because there are good reasons for different investors to take different stances on here. You know, it's going to depend on your investment time horizon and your values and whatever other kind of constraints you're working with, right? So we can't just universally say, you know, investors should do this. That being said, if you look at the scenario you just painted and say there's a lot of incentives for there to be more nuclear generated power, then as an investor you might look at that and say, well, here's an opportunity. You know, this industry is going to be on the rise because there's there's so much momentum behind it. And then, you know, you might still be leery about the risks involved with nuclear power. There's a lot of them, you know, it's capital intensive, there's the whole waste management issue, there's the whole possibility of a meltdown. It's water intensive. It's 
vulnerable to physical risk as climate change happens. So there, there's a lot to consider there. But you could, once you make the decision to invest, if you do that, you could then start to sift through the different companies that are available to you for investment to say, who's doing a good job here? Who's got strong corporate governance? Who's got a good track record at managing their waste? Who's got a good human capital pipeline of engineers coming in and people capable of innovating? That sort of thing. So that you could look at it. It's not just yes or no, this is an opportunity or not. There's always variation within the field. Okay, so for our second story, I decided I wanted to do a one-on-one with Megan Eastman because she actually just finished her first long-form podcast. That's great. It's going to be released in the upcoming weeks, and it's actually on the market effects of the gig economy. And as though she planned it on Wednesday, California passed a bill that makes app-based companies like Uber or Lyft treat workers as employees, and it pretends a reshaping of the gig economy itself. So I'll do a quick stack card, and let's pick on Uber because Uber likes to insist it's not actually a car company but a technology company, and that's just funny to me. And remember, at MSCI ESG Research, again, we rank companies based on their ESG risk factors, and Uber is ranked at a triple B. But we specifically note in our stack card the issue that is on every investor's mind. Uber has an operating model that is underpinned by 3.9 million drivers currently classified as independent contractors. And if Uber had to recognize these 3.9 million drivers as employees, then the already limping Uber business model might be in trouble. So, Megan, since you've already done extensive reporting on the past, present, and future effects of the gig economy, I don't know how you got the future in there. Anyway, I want to discuss the California ruling in the context of ESG investing in general. Because some of the earlier adopters of socially responsible investing were both religious organizations and unions. Because unions did not want to invest their locals' retirement plans on a company that used non-union workers. So, Megan, do you think this ruling will make more people look at companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and other app-based companies, and they will ask questions that used to mostly be reserved for unions? How are you designating your workers? Are they contractors or are they employees? So, I'm sure that there are already some investors who are looking at this from that kind of ethical standpoint. They're concerned about the social impact of a precarious workforce. And they're probably engaging with companies or declining to invest in companies that have been involved in serious controversies, for example. But I think the, in some ways, the much more interesting and probably much more widespread activity that we've observed and that I would expect to observe in the future is really around investors who are concerned with human capital as a risk and as an opportunity that the SEC is looking at this already with the possibility of requiring additional disclosures around how companies manage their workforces, whether those are contractors or permanent employees or whatever, their their human capital, because so much of the value nowadays in a business is coming from the people. I mean, it's a cliche, right? Our people are our greatest assets. You hear that spouted all the time. Uh, but it's actually quite true in a lot of cases, even if it's not fully appreciated. And so we've seen investors, there's a group, I think they call themselves the the Human Capital Coalition or something like that, that's been lobbying the SEC for more disclosures and that's been getting together 
to engage with companies as a group on getting more disclosure around workforce management. There's been an, an increase in the number of shareholder proposals filed with U.S. companies over the last four years that have focused on aspects of workforce management. So there, there are some indications that investors generally are looking at this. And most of the reason, they may have the ethics in mind and the, the social implications, but most of the reason is that they're worried about long-term resilience and whether companies are going to have the ability to innovate, the ability to get creative as the world around them changes, the ability to increase their productivity, to keep up with their competition or get ahead. All that stuff depends on the people and having those people be engaged and loyal and into what they're doing. And the more you depend on contractors and temps, the greater that's at risk. Right, and there also needs to be discussions around how adaptable these employees are. Can the companies actually retain talent? Are they actually able to attract employees when you're sitting next to someone that you know is being treated a lot differently than you are? Because if a company just wants to shave off some profits, they can really disrupt their business in the long term. And the gig economy, which is marketed as a way to be uh, as a way for workers to find freedom, is often having the opposite effect. But I wanted to return to something you just said, actually. That's a lot of it. I mean, it's it's the shift to the knowledge economy that you know we heard so much about 10, 15 years ago, that that's continuing. So much of what is being produced now, you know, that's happened in the United States, is happening in places like China now. And I, I just read a really interesting piece in our forthcoming report on China through an ESG lens that's looking at talent shortages in China as that economy transforms to something that's more technology-based, more services-based, rather than the, the old-school heavy industrial. Yeah, because you have to want your employees to take risks. And, and dream and have room to mess up, which is really scary if you're a contract worker because you aren't going to take risks that could get you fired. You're just going to stay in your lane and do what needs to be done and ensure you can keep your benefits. Yeah, and there's there's a whole professional development angle to it also and, and upskilling and, and adaptation. I mean, you look at the statistics on you know what portion of jobs are likely to be automated or, or what portion of uh, activities are likely to be automated over the coming years, and it's a lot. And places like McKinsey have done studies on this where they're looking at how many people are going to have to change how they do the job that they do, even if they stay in the same job. So there's this whole upskilling piece of it and transformation of the workforce. And in my mind, it's really quite short-sighted to rely too heavily on short-term folks who are coming in and out because you don't get that development necessarily. And and the idea might be that you can bring in whatever you need, the right skills when you need them. But I think there's a bigger macro concern there if you've got this going on through the whole workforce. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Umar and Megan for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening to us. I really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, please rank and review us or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. And have a great rest of the week.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.